Hello, Chitheads listeners, and welcome back. I hope this finds you safe and well amidst the ever-evolving situation around COVID-19. Last year, I conducted two interviews with Dr. Stephen Porges, one for the Embodied Brain online conference and another for the Tracing Trauma online conference. So I wanted to share that first interview from Embodied Brain with you today as our podcast episode for this week, because in that episode, we really explore uh, Stephen's um, innovative and paradigm-shifting polyvagal theory. And the reason why I thought it would be so fruitful to revisit that interview this week is because of the ways in which Stephen's work really highlights the importance and really the necessity, we might say, of contemplative practice for cultivating a sense of safety in our own body-mind, in our own nervous system. So there's many, many really um, important insights that arise out of uh, Stephen Porges' work that I think are kind of important to reflect on right now and um, and uh, sort of serve my um, uh, suggestion that during this time, during this time of, of, of struggle and insecurity and fear, it really is profoundly important that we turn to the techniques, the tools, and the practices that we have available to us as a way of not just making ourselves feel better in a time that is so insecure and unstable, but also so that we can be um, uh, of service to others. We can show up better for our loved ones. We can be that source of support for others who perhaps are not able to deal with this situation um, as well, or perhaps don't have um, the same kind of tools available to them. So I very much hope you enjoy this conversation. And by the way, this talk, um, of course, is a part of a number of of lectures for embodied brain and tracing trauma and all of those lectures if you are looking for some resources right now are available um, uh, through the embodied philosophy wisdom school at the seeker level and there is a seven-day free trial um, if you want to check it out and you can find that at embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash seeker so without further ado here is dr stephen porges Stephen Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium within the Kinsey Institute. He holds the position of professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as president of both the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. Stephen has published more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several disciplines, including anesthesiology, biomedical engineering, critical care medicine, ergonomics, exercise physiology, gerontology, neurology, neuroscience, obstetrics, pediatrics, psychiatry, psychology, psychometrics, space medicine, and substance abuse. 
1994, he proposed the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral problems and psychiatric disorders. This theory is leading to innovative treatments based on insights into the mechanisms mediating symptoms observed in several behavioral, psychiatric, and physical disorders. He is the author of Polyvagal Theory, Neurophysiological Foundations of Emotions, Attachment, Communication, and Self-Regulation, The Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory, The Transformative Power of Feeling Safe, and co-editor of Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory, The Emergence of Polyvagal Informed Therapies. He is the creator of a patented music-based intervention, the Safe and Sound Protocol, which currently is used by more than 1,200 therapists to improve spontaneous social engagement, to reduce hearing sensitivities, and to improve language processing, state regulation, and spontaneous social engagement. So with that, please help me welcome Stephen Porges and our conversation on the polyvagal theory. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Embodied Brain online conference. I'm here today with the legendary Stephen Porges, and today we're going to talk about his paradigm-shifting work on the polyvagal theory. So hello, Stephen. Thank you for having this conversation with me today. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Jacob. It's good to be here with you. So, Stephen, let's start with the basics. You know, everybody is talking about the vagus nerve. So I would love to hear you uh, just describe what is the vagus nerve, where is it, and why should we care about it? Well, let's start off by saying the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in our body. It, mm. it travels between our brainstem and our visceral organs. So it provides the highway, by the communication highway between our organs and our brain. And most people, especially those of us who have grown up in a Western medicine-oriented world, think of the organs as having a life and do their own. So we go to cardiologists, we go to gastroenterologists. Well, what uh, neuroanatomy teaches us and what the vagus helps us understand is that the organs are talking continuously with the brain and the brain is talking continuously with the organs. So it's important to us because the vagus affects virtually every organ inside our body. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the theory that you have developed is called polyvagal. Um, so can you talk about the, the polyvagal theory and why we would call it polyvagal? Yes. Well, the name is really the whole hint of what the theory is. Yeah. It's really to emphasize that we really have more than one vagal pathway. Now, when we kind of were taught this, and when those of us who are either uh, neuroscientists, physiologists, uh, neuroanatomists, and physicians, we were taught primarily that the vagus was a motor system, a motor nerve, uh, going from the brainstem to the organs. But those motor nerves only account for 20% of the pathways within the vagus. 80% of the nerves are actually going from the body to the brain. Now, that's the first part of thinking in a polyconceptual uh, way that we had fibers going up and going down. But really, we have two different types of fibers going down. And primarily, one group is affecting the organs above the diaphragm, like our heart. And the other is affecting the organs below our diaphragm, like our gut. 
Mm. And so the types of nerves that are going to the heart are myelinating. They're very fast uh, uh, acting. Uh, they evolved the whole myelination of those vagal pathways. It was really only observed in mammals in terms of evolution. And then we have an unmyelinated nerve that we share with virtually all vertebrates, all organisms with backbones, basically, that goes below the diaphragm. This becomes a very interesting conceptual distinction. So we have a vagus that primarily is related to our heart, and the vagus that's primarily related to our gut. Mm. The vagus that's related to our gut is very, very old and can also be used as a defense reaction. So we tend to think of fight flight as being our primary defense system. And people talk about being over-aroused, being activated, being sympathetically driven through the sympathetic nervous system. But that's only one form of defense. And that form of defense facilitates movement, mobilization, fighting and fleeing. But we share with virtually all vertebrates, a very ancient shutting down system that is mediated through a old unmyelinated vagus. And that system basically slop, stops or slows our heart and empties our gut. So in a sense, you know, defecation uh, through, through fear is part of this response. Passing out through fear is part of some of the old fibers from this unmyelinated ancient vagus that still are going to the heart, even though it's not the major regulator of the heart. So we have in the vagus a very, very ancient defense system. And many people who are interested in alternative forms of medicine, those uh, people who are interested in yoga and other practices, many of those people have had experiences where that subdiaphragmatic vagus has been recruited in defense. So people who have experienced trauma or abuse, this system is really the one that comes in to, to protect us. Mm. And uh, the visualization you want to think about is a mouse in the jaws of a, a cat. The mouse is just lose all muscle tone, looks like it's dead, but really what it's done is trigger this old vagal circuit. And the other part that I really want to emphasize is that the vagal pathways that go to the heart in the brain, in the brainstem, are integrated in terms of regulation with the nerves that go to the face. So when mm. we smile, we're projecting our heart on our face. When we have a melodic voice, we're projecting our heart in our voice. And so when we see people again with trauma, their faces are flat and their voices lose all the melodic characteristics that would make us feel safe. So kind of summarizing polyvagal theory identifies two major vagal pathways that occurred at different stages of evolution and we have all, both of them in our system, but they do different things under threat. And the newer vagus is really a vagal circuit of safety and engagement. So when we are connected with another person, when we uh, smile and we have melodic voices, our body becomes safe. And now that old vagus, rather than being a defense system, helps support health growth and restoration. So we now are able to see that human interaction is really uh, works through the vagal pathways, enabling us to feel safe. And functionally, our social interactions are neural exercises of that system. Mm. 
So, um, so just to kind of get clear for my own, since this isn't you know my specialty, the 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 vagal circuit in terms of you're describing this kind of third vagal mm -hmm. response, or you know you can help me with the terminology. But um, are are we saying that there's a third vagal pathway when we're talking about this new sort of pro-social? Um, we would clarify that so when you're saying three autonomic circuits where you have this older vagus, you have a sympathetic, which everyone knows about and sees it as a stress right. response. And that's the fight or flight. That's the fight or yeah. flight. But you have a third one, a, a system, and it's a second vagal, so it's a polyvagal. Right. That system is really a system uh, that comes out, it blossoms in, in segments of, in, of our life when we are safe. When mm -hmm. we feel comfortable, so it's a system that enables us to to connect with other people, and what this system does, it enables our sympathetic nervous system and the vagus below the diaphragm to work in harmony to support health, growth, and rest, restoration. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, in a sense, one of the goals in life is to be able to connect with others, but one of the products of that is to be able to be physically still. In, this, in the arms of another or in the presence of another that now facilitates health, growth, and restoration. Visualize a baby in the arms of the mother or visualize lovers comfortable with each other. So moments of intimacy, moments of trust require that new vagal circuit to be in place and functioning. So if people really want to be embraced, but someone embraces them, their body tightens up and they yeah. pull back, um, their sympathetic defensive systems are pulling in and saying, those are cues in which the body can get hurt. Now, polyvagal theory proposed one other point, actually two important points. One is the cues that cause that body to be pulled back are far from voluntary. They're reflexive. They're in a, in a sense, again, a neural circuit of, that is not intentional. The body just says, I'm not safe. And we often would yell at people, say, you're not looking at me and their bodies are this way. The issue is their body is reacting uh, based upon a more of a reactive reflexive circuit. I call that response system a, a neuroception because it's not perception. Once we start saying you are perceiving me as dangerous, you now shift the intentionality and responsibility. But if I say based on your neuroception, your body, can't distinguish what is safe and what's not safe, then there's a different level of understanding, a different level of respect. For and neuroception is sort of, be it's below the threshold of your conscious mind, right? It's different than your conscious mind, yeah. meaning that it could be quite high up in the brain, uh, but it's not in our conscious areas. Right. And it occurs, just think about it, if, we, if we're crossing the street and, and we hear something and our body pulls back before we even can identify it, it has very powerful adaptive reactions. So our body detects cues faster than we can identify them, label them, or even create a narrative to explain them. Now this creates a real problem in, in for humanity because when people pull back from being embraced, they start creating a narrative of why they did that. So they try to, in a sense, explain with intentions, yet this may not have anything to do with the other person. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's very interesting. I want to go back to something that you already began to talk about, which is um, sort of how this approach differs from what we might call a kind of orthodoxy or or, or the the previous paradigm. And and as I mentioned at the beginning, your work is considered quite 
paradigm shifting in the sense that it's making certain scientific understandings amenable and complementary to a number of contemplative approaches. So I wanted to just talk about that previous paradigm a bit and and how this is really, um, uh, we might say, um, well, a way of asking this question would be, can you characterize the old paradigm that polyvagal theory is helping us to move away from? Okay, this, this became a more complex question over the decades. Initially, I said it's really quite simple. The old paradigm is really saying that there's a dialectic between a sympathetic fight-flight and a parasympathetic nervous system without nuancing or understanding the parasympathetic nervous system, which the vagus is a major component of can also be used in defense. So polyvagal theory elaborated on that and showed that there were two of those systems and they followed an evolutionary sequence. And this is the other point that I left out in the early discussion, that the system is literally hierarchically organized. Mm. And that gives you a lot of clues about how, people's, uh, how people function. So it has this newer system, which kind of encapsulates or constrains or contains this other system from being defensive. So when the newer system, the phase, the connectedness, uh, starts to really function, it enables the other aspects of our autonomic nervous system to serve their purpose, to help us have pleasure, to enjoy life, but also to support our physiological needs. But when we are challenged, we start moving down the evolutionary ladder. And that evolutionary stages, uh, we move from this uh, safety engagement with the face and with the myelinated vagus, we move to a more defensive system of the sympathetic nervous system. And when we're in this massive sympathetic state without the protection of that social engagement, new vagus, we inhibit our gut. So we start talking about what are the symptoms of modern society, constipation, yeah, you know, or tightly wrapped, this kind of thing anxious people. Well, the, the mobilization turns off the gut. That's part of this hierarchy. Now, if you go down and use the lower defense system, uh, that subdiaphragmatic vagus, you now have uh, irritable bowel syndrome and diarrhea. So what you find in a lot of the symptoms of modern society are people oscillating from being having a literally a constipated gut to having a diarrhea and they go back and forth with the irritable bowel. And medical treatment models want to treat the disorder when the disorder is really a, a, a disorder of how the nervous system has reacted. But I want to give you one term. This hierarchy moving down to lower and lower evolutionary systems is called dissolution or evolution in reverse. And it was a neurological concept uh, uh, created or uh, proposed in the late 1800s by a neurologist by the name of John Huggins Jackson. And what it really was saying in his modeling was that when you have brain damage, the lower circuits become disinhibited. Mm -hmm. So polyvagal theory just kind of like barred and says, not only do the brain circuits become disinhibited, but you move down the evolutionary ladder of how the autonomic nervous system works. Now, I want to make one other point about what I was saying that my own view was that it was really people weren't appreciating this. And I was blaming that, that old view on a very important uh, uh, anatomist or neurophysiologist uh, in the early 1920s by the name of Langley, who, who termed, created the term autonomic nervous system. And he basically only described it as a motor system. 
so there were no sensory fibers. Well, I went back and I decided I would really uh, read his original writings, uh, read it really carefully because I had to write a chapter on neurocardiology. And what he actually had in the chapter was something a little bit different than what I had thought. He was saying that, okay, this is what we're going to do for now. We're going to start articulating what the motor systems are. We're not going to tell you everything, but that's all he got done in the book. But he made another set of statements. He talked about myelinated unmyelinated fibers just in the branches there in, 19, in the early 1920s. So what I was really saying is that we have misread him. And what happened is that his teachings, and he was the first one to label this whole collection of neural regulation of these organs as an autonomic nervous system. Um, that's how it became taught in medical schools. So when you talk to physicians, uh, they don't tend, they tend not to understand or think about the sensory components. And with the recent work on vagal nerve stimulation, which is all about sensory, people are starting to get that into their vocabulary and their constant context of how they see the body function. We're already talking, we've already been talking about the kind of bi-directional relationship between the brain and the body. Um, but I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about that on this point of, you know, the older paradigm, because it seems to me that one of the, um, one of the features of that is this idea that, you know, um, uh, dealing with anxiety has gener generally been a kind of top-down approach, you know, address anxiety consciously or cognitively, and that will then, you know, have a reverberating effect downward into the body, whereas, you know, a lot of what is featured in your work is this idea that, you know, not to negate that, but also to include the other direction yeah. um, from the body upwards. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think what you're saying is really totally on target because we have basically, we're blaming people for being anxious right. and we're saying, you should be able to control that. Yeah. But if we shifted the paradigm and said, uh, your body is being triggered. And if we now utilize an understanding of polyvagal theory, we would say, how do we trigger the body to feel safe? Yes. Okay, if we trigger it to feel safe based on polyvagal principles, the safety is going to now override the defensive uh, activities. So, uh, the, so it's just like watching a little baby who's crying and then the mother just kind of like sings a lullaby to the baby and suddenly the tears dry up, the baby becomes relaxed and falls asleep in the arms of the mother. So the mother is giving the child cues uh, to trigger a neuroception of trust and safety. And those, those states are incompatible with being defensive. Or if we think of anxiety as merely resting on a physiological state of defensiveness. Yeah. So if we shift anxiety from you're anxious, you have no reason to be anxious, like many people will say, to say, I, I see that your body is responding to the context of this environment. I hate to be so you know, wordy about this, but it's reacting to this. Yeah. And uh, what can we do that makes your body feel more safe? Let's take this as a homework problem. Do I like being in quieter rooms? Do I like having time by myself? Or do I like someone looking at me and smiling at me or holding my hand? Or do I like my dog? And so if I'm with my dog, do I suddenly feel safe? So what we're saying is how can our bodies recruit uh, this newer circuit to make us feel calm? And what are the triggers for that? And what I always say is that 
because of neuroception is out of our out of our really awareness, we often get fooled. But we are never fooled by our body's reaction. So our body is so powerful when it reacts. Often for many people, they don't know why it's reacting. So they look at the person across from them and they say, you're the cause. Mm -hmm. and, and the real issue is that they had a bad day, they had this, they have a stomach ache or something else. And their threshold to be reactive is much lower. And a neutral type of stimulus, given their physiological state, their body reacted to a neutral input in a very uh, conservative way, meaning they interpret neutral, neutral cues as if they were hurtful. And I think we've all had those experiences where you said something to a friend, and that friend just blows up and says, why are you saying that? And you could have said that to the person the day before or a few hours before, and there'd be no problem. Mm. So there's a retuning uh, based on our physiological state of what cues will then lead to defensiveness. So, okay, so I want to um, uh, ask about something that I read in one of your articles, vagal tone, because as we're talking about this, it's sort of, you know, it, uh, and I'm wondering if this is sort of the, if I'm on the right track and thinking about it in this way, that, that um, as we segue into conversation about, you know, rituals or yoga and meditation, um, when we're, uh, so I have a day in which I'm, you know, triggered by this, that, or my body is triggered by this, that, or the other thing, would the, would the, easily triggered, you know, a nervous system be a result of low vagal tone, like well, as if, like a weak muscle or? Well, let, let's play, remember, vagal tone's a construct, so it's, it's right. a metaphor. Yeah. And uh, what it's really saying is that the feedback loops through that myelinated vagus are pretty strong. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in general, what you're saying, if that is true, you tend to be more resilient, which is really your question. Yeah. And now we're working on another, another methodology. So that was easily measured by looking at the rhythmicity, the amplitude, the oscillations in the heart rate, because when we inhale, now we're moving into a yoga world. Yeah. When we inhale, we're turning off that myelinated vagus. And when we exhale, we're basically allow it, allowing it to function. So, and if we use abdominal breathing, we start sending more cues. So deep abdominal breathing will result in an enhancement of that vagal circuit, okay? So what I'm working on now is not merely that measure of this amplitude of this vagal influence on the heart, but how flexible it is. And I call this vagal efficiency. Mm. So that when I need to remove that vagal inhibition, because remember, the vagus, when it's affecting our heart, slows it up. And sometimes we have to get up, we have to stand up and move, and we need to get our heart rate up, or we need to, uh, basically, we need metabolic resources. And yeah. we have to get that through our heart beating faster. So like, I'm seated, you're seated. If we stand up, our heart rate's going to have to go up to get the blood moving to our brain because of our tube has elongated. And we have to get the blood up there, the oxygenated blood. So the, the issue of, of this system, how rapidly it can retract, pull off, and how rapidly and how efficiently it can re-engage is what I'm calling vagal efficiency. And so there are two aspects. One, which is the vagal tone, which is the, in a sense, the basal level of this feedback loop. The second one is vagal efficiency, which is really the efficiency of the vagal break 
being taken on, uh, pulled off and put back on. Mm. Now, what would, um, you know, yogic forms of, of exercise, and of course, mm. there are, you know, many forms of yoga that includes meditation and all this, but when we're talking about asana specifically, because as I hear you describing the kind of need for um, uh, a flexibility of heart rate, so to speak, I imagine that uh, normal forms of exercise would also mm -hmm. offer, would also kind of facilitate that. So what is unique or what is special about yoga with regards to um, this vagal? Okay. So, so I would move into more, more attributes of pranayama yoga. Okay. Because the myelinate vagus, the system, is linked to the neuroregulation of the striated muscles of the face and head. Basically, you can think of the system of this ventral vagal myelinate vagus as an integrated social engagement system, but it's really the same system that is exercised in pranayama yoga. Mm -hmm. So it has to do with breath. A lot breath is very important because as you inhale, you're pulling off the brake, and as you exhale, you put the brake back on. And if you use methods of extending the duration of exhalation, which now become meditative, mm -hmm. but really methods of enhancing the vagal influence on our heart, mm -hmm. calming us down. If we talk about listening, which is a meditative process, uh, we are regulating uh, muscles in our middle ear that are linked to how the vagal regulation of the heart works. If we talk about the muscles of the upper part of the face, especially around the eye, uh, that's muscles called the orbicularis oculi. It's also linked to that vagal influence on the heart. But probably the most powerful one is vocalizations. Yeah. So now we move into the world of chanting and, yes. and all that mm -hmm. because the nerves that regulate those vocalizations are vagal nerves, but they're not going to the heart. Yeah. So the intonation of our voice, so when you interview people or talk to people, you know a lot about them based upon the intonation of their voice. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if their voices are relatively melodic and not too low and not too high, we get pulled in because those are the distilled cues of safety that our neuroception of our body, our neuroception is using to identify safety in another person. And those are the people that we develop trust in. So we now talk about what are some of the yogic practice practices. We realize that vocalizations and chanting and owning, these all are exercises of these neural circuits that lead to enhanced vagal regulation. So we get glimpses of those state changes through yoga, but we also realize, at least from my perspective, that's only part of the story. Our bodies evolve not to sit in a corner and do yoga, yoga practices. Our bodies evolve to connect with others and be safe. And in a sense, it's a world of connectedness. Yeah. And that if our nervous system has the capacity to experience safety, we have the opportunity to create connections. And what I often say, I say to people is, I have a projective question. And the projective question is, how do you deal with stillness? Now, how do you deal? How do you deal with stillness? Right. How do you experience it? Is really what mm. I'm saying. 
So, so like as in, in a state where, you know, you like in a high paced society, I'm sort of forced to sit for 10 minutes. I don't, is this out, is this outside the context of meditation that you're? Oh, it's everything because okay. for most people, stillness is falling into an abyss and gets them extremely anxious yeah. Yeah. because <clears throat> they don't have the capacity to immobilize without fear. So it's a projective test and say, if I talk to you and I say, well, if you were to rate the opportunity to experience stillness on a zero to 10 scale, where would you put it? And a lot of people would say, I, you know, it's zero is the worst. I just don't want to be there. It's frightening to me. Yeah. And that means that their bodies haven't had the uh, sufficient opportunities to feel safe uh, in an immobilized state, which is really moments of intimacy mm. or moments of spirituality, or moments of connectedness. They're all kind of linked together. But if we start moving into that and our body starts to literally to become calm, it triggers a neuroception in those that have been hurt during those periods of time of vulnerability and they become reactive. It's like if we go back to the early part of the conversation that we want to give people hugs and a lot of people would like hugs, but as soon as the arms come around, the body pulls back. Yeah. And it's not, uh, in a sense, it's a very good projective test for the mental health or, or let's say the ability to relate to others for anyone at any given time. It's not, it's not there all the time. So at certain times, you could probably give a very warm embrace and hug, while at other times you may be too much on your mind and the hug just interrupts the thought process and your body recoils. So stillness is very much like that. Stillness is something that frightens many people. And so they keep moving and working and exercising and drinking more coffee to keep mobilized. But if you see it in the real topography, what's going on, you're seeing that the person's body says, I can't trust what's going on around me. I have to maintain a state of hyper vigilance. I have to be concerned about those who are around me. So could we go so far as to say that the compulsion towards productivity and speed in our society is in a, in a certain way kind of an avoidance of the fear that lives in the stillness? I, I think it's a pretty, that's a pretty succinct way of saying it. But as you said that, I started to kind of reflect about my, my life and what I viewed as my internalized, or as I was say, my personal narrative. Because mm -hmm. everyone will have the personal narrative of why they can't experience stillness. Yeah. And they might say, I need to make money. I'm, and what they're really saying, why do you need to make money? I'm not safe in the environment. Or I need yeah. to take care of my parents. I need to do this, I need to do that. They all come down not to, to the metaphors of are they safe within the setting and even in terms of their internalized responsibilities for others. Yeah. And, and so look, you, the issue, I, I, I actually really enjoy uh, these types of dialogues at this time of my life because the concept of universities is really a wonderful model of people not feeling safe. Yeah, you mentioned this in one of your articles. I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah. It is actually the provost read that. <laughs> I gave a copy to the provost and she didn't like it. But the point is, it was, it's really true that if you, again, want to be creative and want to do things, it's a very vulnerable world because the world is a world of chronic evaluation. And the, the goal for those of us who have let's say succeeding within that world is to understand what we get by leveraging that. 
not by saying we want to embrace that and say everything should be a world of of, of criticism of other, which is really what academics is. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a very critical world. And sometimes it leads to very important things if you can deal with the uh, the arrows that are shot at you, if you can deal with that, if you don't have that kind of thick skin is the word people used to say. But as we have uh, learned more about individual differences in mental health, what we start to realize is that many people who are academics are on autistic spectrum or on the mm. autistic spectrum. So they're basically a function at a high level because they don't have that awareness. And if people are aware, they become sensitized to their awareness and academic world is very hard on them. So what I was basically saying is that it's pretty nice to be at this stage of my life to have succeeded within that world and now to leverage it to now talk about things that I find very relevant to our day-to-day -day living. Yeah. So, you know, just to stay on that for a second, what kind of proposed institutional changes would be necessary to facilitate uh, a kind of autonomic sense of safety within the academy. Well, see, I would move back into into elementary school and to right. the actual environment of classrooms. Uh, I would almost say that universities can be what they are because they they do some very very good things and yeah. they enable people to uh, be very productive and very creative. I think universities got hit over the past I would say twenty years. Uh, with the financial models. So most universities are run very much like corporations. Mm -hmm. And so rather than impact recognition and bold new ideas, they're very concerned about bottom line, which would mean how much money are you bringing in? And if you're really developing new technologies, um, is there a marketplace for those technologies? So, yeah. Yeah. so it becomes like a business, probably uh, uh, when it's really best model was like that of a monastery. So right. the, the model was more uh, monastic. Yeah, I was thinking about the Nalanda University and, yeah. and that structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The notion is if, if you can kind of like, uh, if there's respect for, uh, for inquiry, which is really what we're talking about, as opposed to respect for acceptance by a, uh, a, a niche, a small group. And what I had noticed with academics is uh, about 20 years ago, I was looking at where I was. You know, I, I was a professor, I was an assistant professor on a tenure track when I was 25. And wow. now it's very unusual in the world now. It wasn't that unusual when I was doing it. But I've watched over the years how things change. But I then decided I'd start looking at how people transitioned out of it. So it was one thing to be successful and in it. And then what I started to notice uh, was that most people had great difficulty transitioning out yeah. because they, they bought into the model and they were always feeling that they didn't get their uh, acknowledgement that they deserve. People or people had forgotten who they were. So it was like they were trying to hang on. And I said, that's really a strange, uh, a strange thing to do because you've had all these opportunities uh, why should you expect anything more than what you have experienced? Uh, and young people have to come in as well, so you have to move, move off, move out. Um, but I was very shocked uh, to see that the transitions for people uh, hadn't been thought out. And so people tried to be exactly what they were when they were in their 30s or 40s. Yeah. And they weren't trying to be more philosophical, more 
transformative, more bridging of science and life. Yeah. And so that's it created a portal for me. So I was very happy to think <laughs> of that. But uh, I, I don't have any problem moving right back into the academic world because I understand that and I understand the language. So part of it is uh, you need a, a degree of boldness, but you also need to have an understanding of the language. And the language within academics is different than the language in humanities or the languages in philosophy or the language in contemplative practices. Yeah. So, okay, so I want to ask a question that sort of, um, I was going to ask it later, but I think since we're on this sort of track talking about institutions, I'll ask it now. So we'll zoom out a little bit and then zoom back into contemplative practices. Um, but the question I had was related to safety, which you've been mentioning, and that sense of safety. And, and, and if, uh, the first thing I sort of, that occurred to me when I was reading one of your articles that directly spoke about safety was, you know, the rhetoric of safety that is so kind of prevalent in our uh, political um, yeah. climate at the moment. And, and you remark um, very, you know, interestingly on how the, the, the kind of approach to safety is often uh, the centrality of safety in the discourses around kind of um, structural, uh, a structural model, right? So restructuring external things to, and you, and you propose uh, alternatively a visceral sensitivity model. So can you talk yeah. about that? I would make it even simpler. I think you're right on target, but I would say that our culture doesn't even understand safety, it understands right. threat. So it focuses on threat and removal of threat is not equivalent to safety. Yes, yes. It's not that it's bad. I'm not saying removal of threat is a bad thing. Yeah. It's, it's not what our bodies are, 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 are thriving. We really want cues of safety. We want people to look at us. We want people to talk to us in a melodic voice. We want to have a place of refuge or quiet. We don't want uh, aggressiveness uh, bombarded on us all the time. We don't mind it as a, as a species some of the time. But we need to know that there is safety somewhere. And we're not getting that. So we're being ramped up in our own insecurities, or I'm saying insecurities, we're being ramped, our neuroception is coming online to trigger defensiveness, hypervigilance and defensiveness, as opposed to retooling our neuroception in a way that says there's always going to be a certain degree of risk. But in general, it's a safe environment. Right now, if someone said that to us, how do we feel? Versus, you can never tell who's coming up behind you. You know, you start. Actually, they wouldn't say it with that voice. They would say it in a different voice. And you, what I often tell people is, watch the politicians or the people making those statements, and even turn off the sound and look at their face. Yeah, and you'll see everything's coming from the lower part of the face, which is part of more of an aggressive. A part of our body and the upper part of the face, which cues us of safety and acceptance and caring, is turned off. Mm. And if you listen to the voice, the voices lack modulation and are basically we're being yelled at, we're being barked at. And so that gets our body this way already. I see. So then could we also say that um, we have a, a relative incapacity or a less wise ability to discern between what is a legitimate threat and what isn't a legitimate threat if we haven't cultivated that sense of safety 
vaguely, if that's <laughs> if I can use the word that way. You're good. But but you're 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 asking a very interesting question. And the question is, do we want to be so conservative in our defensiveness that we won't our bodies will not take chances on anything that is ambiguous? Versus do we want to be more accepting and uh, it's a, what we're doing physiologically is if we shift our physiological state to become more defensiveness, that feedback changes our neuroception. And now we see neutral faces and neutral people, neutral behaviors. We'll tend to classify them in our brain, in our nervous system as aggressive, as dangerous. Uh, and uh, our bodies will react to that. If we are in this more socially engaged, more connected mode, the bias shifts. Mm -hmm. And that's, so the signals have always been, uh, I'm gonna use a word that's commonly used, tribal, inclusion, familiarity, all these things enable our nervous system to be more inclusive and less defensive. But as we start pulling it tighter together and start saying that you have to be part of my uh, political party, part of my religion, part of my ethnicity, for my familiarity signals, for familiarity signals to enable me to feel safe, you start uh, shifting a larger and larger uh, repertoire of defensive behaviors towards others. Mm. Okay, so then let's go ahead and transition back to talking about contemplative practices because I want to ask some more kind of specific qu uh, questions about individual um, uh, uh, practices. Um, so one of the things that you that you mention is you know kind of the function of of ritual, and you make a kind of um, historical argument about the role of, of of various kind of you know prayers and and, and religious rituals as being. Um, you know, a way of of the, the our culture um, cultivating this kind of um, parasympathetic hmm. um, uh, uh, response. So, can you talk about the the role of ritual, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit more about meditation. Okay. So, what I decided I would do was kind of look at ritual as a as something that was different than religion. Yeah. I mean, I, of course, we all enter it assuming that religions are based on rituals, but rituals often preceded religions. Right, yeah. And as we start looking at what these rituals are, which have to be with vocalizations or chanting, with posture shifts during prayer, um, with a breath, which is really very important in terms of virtually all of them, it might be masked in terms of like, as I sing, I extend the duration of my exhalation, so I'm actually doing breathing while singing. Um, and in, you know, some of them, there are even certain types of facial expressions you can make or glowing aspects. Um, we start realizing that embedded in these ancient traditions were strategies to shift our physiological state and to shift the state into a more welcoming and connected state. And they then became under uh, then religions kind of used them as well as they got put into the religions. I've had actually interesting discussions with people from various religions about their rituals and where the rituals came from, and basically end up with statements that the rituals preceded the religions. Mm -hmm. And what we start seeing is that there's a kind of a, a general set of them, including posture shifts, which trigger through feedback loops, different vagal activity, breath, 
which affects vagal activity and oxygenization, uh, uh, vocalizations, which have even more than the breath component because they are stimulating other vagal nerves and they may actually end up being a mechanism for treating uh, different, okay. It, this, neuroanatomically, if you were to take the vagus and snip it oh. and look at the fibers, we're not going to do this, <laughs> and, and, and put an electrode around it mm -hmm. and turn that, uh, uh, that electrode with different frequencies, it would reach different organs because the diameter of the vagal fibers going to those organs are of different, uh, different thickness. Mm. So functionally, if ohms or chants have different frequencies, they may, so there's a plausibility that they could be transmitted through that vagal nerve to different target organs. So now you start moving into some of the other ancient traditions yes. where certain types of chants and sounds have quote healing properties to specific types of disorders. And what I'm saying, there's a plausibility in that type of modeling. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying it's real or not really, I'm saying it's plausible and can be so the plausibility enables a bridging of practice to science. Mm -hmm. So, um, what is the? I wanted to just ask this question, and then and I want to talk about um, chanting again, again, but uh, chanting a bit. But and and of course we're talking about this. But this question came up in one of your articles, and I thought it was a good one. Um, what are the mechanisms through which meditation heals? Okay, so I started to think about this. I, I'm, I'm giving a talk in a few days on something like like this, and I I had remembered uh, that I was told many years ago that the Chinese pictograph or letter for listening had heart and ear in it. Mm. And so I, I went online and I found one that has more than heart and ear. It has focused attention, it has being present, it, it has a lot of it. And basically, if you decompose it, it becomes many of the features that I talk about in the social engagement system. So listening, if we think of meditation or one component of meditation as listening, it is a form of integrated exercise of what I call the social engagement system, which is the nerves that regulate the face and head and the vagal nerve to the heart. So meditation uh, kind of retrie retrieves and exercises many of those nerves. That, that is, um, is as one of the components of meditation. So when, when I put down meditation, I put, I'm now putting bread listening. Right, and I like that because I think that's often not spoken about. That you know that there is a kind of listening process that is uh, that is kind of um, constitutive of meditation. Yes, and then we get into the other issue of listening and witnessing, mm -hmm. uh, and and the attributes that a good listener has versus someone who is uh, basically just documenting what people say. So a good listener is now utilizing all these features. And it's, this is where I get into the difference between, in my modeling, between empathy and compassion. Yeah. A good listener doesn't share the pain. The good yes. listener respects the pain and respects the other in a compassionate way and is not hurt by listening. Yes, I loved this because this is actually a question I had, was this distinction you make between empathy yeah. and compassion, because from what I understand, you put empathy on the 
sympathetic nervous system side. So the the a form of fight and flight, right. fight or flight, and then the and then compassion on the parasympathetic side, parasympathetic. So can you talk yeah. more about that? Well, I would make it even simpler. Uh, okay. If we go, part of what neuroscience tells us uh, is that when we see people being hurt, we feel their pain. Yeah. Okay. And that became the science of empathy, even the sense of a little bit of nausea. Uh, and so it doesn't always, when we get nauseous, it's not sympathetic. It's that old vagal circuit of defense is shutting down. But basically, we, our bodies are vulnerable that we see injury to others. We start to feel it. Now, when we are the survivor of an injury, and we are now telling someone about this, and they are now feeling the pain that we have, how does the survivor feel? The survivor is now feeling that they're injuring the person they're talking to. Mm, yeah. Okay. So the survivor becomes victim again by trying to share the information. But if the person the survivor is talking to has compassion, has concern, has a type of empathy that is not allowing that person to be hurt, but allowing that person to respect the other's feelings, then we have really true levels of compassion that have healing capacity. And that is what I'm really calling witnessing, this capacity or ability to witness, to listen at that deep physiological level, which is not self-injurious. So if I'm listening to your pains, it's not self-injurious, but it's with great respect and concern about you, that I'm there in the room with you, I am supporting. Now, if people can do that, then you don't have burnout. Mm -hmm. Okay, the burnout is really when the body is, it recoils, it's like, I can't take this anymore, it's too much. So there's something that is necessary, especially in the world of healthcare and mental health care, where people have to either have the capacity or some way we have, or somehow, we have to develop strategies of enabling people to find that capacity in themselves. So the, I wanted to go back now to, okay, just kind of the, the differences between, and I know we've talked a little bit about this, but just to get a little clearer about, so the, we have meditation, we have chanting, we have breathing, mm -hmm. are each, you know, and of course, people who are uh, familiar with certain uh, traditions would see this kind of altogether as a body of sadhana that one does, you know, mm -hmm. at different points in one's practice. And so each of these different um, uh, each of these different practices is stimulating, from what I understand, a different aspect of the vagal nerve, or is it? Um... Okay. So actually, let me just hold you there. Sure. We're not <laughs> the nerve is merely a conduit for communication. Right. So we're not when we even use the word stimulate the nerve. That's not really what we're concerned or dealing with. We're dealing with the regulation of the nerve, which really is a brain process and the feedback from the organ. I see. So whenever it is an exercise, so when we develop our muscles, we challenge them and the feedback from that challenge enables the coordination and the capacity of the muscle system, skeletal muscle system to be enhanced. We develop coordination by practicing. If we play, uh, you have a keyboard behind you, so you, you know uh, fingering, uh, use of the fingers playing music, there's coordination and there's a neural exercise on that. So we have to think of the contemplative practices as neural exercises. Right. And the product 
of those neural exercises is in changing how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. Right. Okay. So part of my, my theme now when I'm moving into this area of contemplative practices is not to talk to people uh, and try to say, yes, we can prove that what you do has a beneficial effect, like increasing vagal activity. Rather, I say, we can understand the mechanisms through which contemplative practices can have a helpful effect. Yes. And that's really what my, my, my message is, that the mechanisms are quite obvious. And those mechanisms will lead to better mental and physical health because they are exercising these crucial feedback loops that our body needs to survive and we need to connect with others. Mm -hmm. um, what then is the, because this was something that as I was reading, I wasn't quite, uh, I couldn't quite tease out, which was the the difference between hearing like the motherese that you describe it, I like this term, which is sort of the the um, the melodic nature of the female voice. And even when the, a female is not present, generally there's a kind of um, feminine-like quality to the caregiver, you know, in the case of the child. Um, but when one is, when it, when one is sort of, affected in some way by by that you know mm. vibratory frequency of from the other person how does that differ in what's happening um based on what we're talking about from the person who's chanting because right the the, li the listening versus okay. the emitting okay the two just two different channels first of all when you're emitting you're also listening so yeah it's like if you were a musician, you would be producing music, but you to do that, you have the entire feedback loop in which you're listening. When you're chanting, you're also listening. Or if you're listening to people chanting, the act of listening is not as passive as most people would think. It's our bodies do shift neural state. When we are in safe environments, we have massive neural shifts when we are listening to vocalizations in certain frequency bands. And so let's go back to what you were saying about the baby. And let's also say that uh, even males, and this is because we have male caregivers and female ca caregivers of babies, males will talk to babies in a higher pitched voice. And I always like to say is fathers are very good with their dogs and maybe not so good with their children because they will talk to their dogs in petties or higher pitched voice. But with their child, they have taken on the role of being a disciplinarian, which often means the voice goes down to a lower pitch and is less melodic. So we start seeing this uh, manifestation. Somehow our bodies know what to do to a, a little dog or kitten, and our bodies know how to vocalize to a baby. It's part of, in a sense, our genetic uh, history. It's, it's built into us. And we're finding in our own, this is where research helps to support uh, some of these ideas, that if you challenge a baby, and one of the main ways, of what interesting paradigm ways of challenging it is to basically freeze your face. Uh, you interact with the baby and then you go blank. It's called the still face paradigm. It was developed by Ed Tronic. And so when you do that to a baby, they get re a six or nine month old baby, they get very upset. And then after doing this for two minutes, the mother or the experimenter or the caregiver will re-engage the baby. Mm. Now, and that re-engagement often has a vocalization 
component. Yeah. If the mothers have, in a sense, a, a more a melodic, uh, certain more, I'll use term, a middle frequency band, more up, up in this range, uh, the baby's heart rates slow up. If the mother's modulation is in a lower band, the baby's heart rate goes up. So wow. either, so in a sense, the baby's neuroception is so uh, tuned to detect the modulation within a frequency band as cues that can relax, I'm in safe arms again, or I'm still uncertain about what will happen. Mm. So we've talked about you know meditation and chanting and then and listening on these levels a bit, and uh, but I'm also wondering about prayer. Is there any kind of research around the what you know in relation to vagal tone that relates to prayer? Well, I, I well I don't know. So you're asking <laughs> a question on something I don't know, but we can think about this. Yeah. And the first question I would ask: Are we talking about silent prayer? Are we talking about responsive readings? Are we talking about Verbalization. Uh, what what are we dealing with? And people have there 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 are documents where people distinguish between prayer and meditation. Yeah, and you know there's a lot of this types of stuff going on uh, in terms of contemplative practice, in terms of what people want to say, um, and also whether when we start moving uh, uh, from uh, prayer, kind of overlaps with religion. Yeah, uh, and. And medication is more spirituality. Yeah. We start getting the separation of structure versus connectedness. And in structure, as we do prayer, how many prayer, it becomes more of an input output model. Right. And medication becomes more of a visceral state model. I see. And that's how I'm thinking about it. It doesn't mean that prayer can't be useful because for many people, prayer is the mode through which they get into almost a meditative state. Yeah. 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 So you've done this really fascinating work on um, polyvagal theory, uh, this article, um, uh, polyvagal theory as it connects to yoga therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wanted to talk for a moment um, as we kind of, this will be sort of our last topic together um, about, you know, what you've discovered in your own research as it relates to the gunas, which I just thought was really interesting, and these three, um, uh, the sympathetic nervous system, the dorsal vagal complex, and the ventral vagal complex uh, as, as sort of correlating in some way to, the, to Rajas, Thomas, and Sattva, as many people know from the, the gunas. Yeah, so first of all, the uh, first author is uh, uh, Marilisa Sullivan, and she is a teacher in an integrated medicine college university. And she took the lead and I supported it. And so uh, I, I wrote and made sure that all the descriptions on polyvagal theory and physiology were correct. I see. Okay. But, but the notion of, of this, the point that I found real interesting in working with her on the paper is that one of the things that I've been talking about over the past uh, few years has been what I use. I basically I use a slide that says three circuits, uh, five states, and that's what you use to explain the gunas and how they work. So you have a state of which we are safe and calm and socially engaged, and so so that has a guna associated with because the terminology for of calmness and connectedness and creativity all fit within that one. 
And then there was a state of sympathetic activation, which is mobilization and energetics. And then there's this aguna for that. And then the chaos of the shutting down. Yeah. But in terms of yoga philosophy, it's the combination of these that are really in everything that we experience. And so in my modeling, I wanted to talk about what's play, you know, what's play and dance. And that was putting together the mobilization, the sympathetic with this newer Vegas. And I also wanted to say what was intimacy, which was this ability to uh, immobilize or experience stillness, but stillness in the arms of safety, which was with that social engagement. And she beautifully integrated this uh, in, in a table. And so the modeling that I had where I was seeing the mixtures of these states overlapped totally with the guna, how the gunas could be viewed as creating individual differences or what people would say is temperamental features in, in people uh, and using gunas as, as, a, as a strategy for that. Uh, the paper is available as a download uh, uh, from Frontiers. So all one would need to do is is search uh, Frontiers Yoga and actually put my name in it, and it will come down. It will be pop up. What was interesting to me and basically shocking or surprising is the paper came out, and within the first two months, they had over thirty thousand downloads of the paper. It's up to fifty six thousand now. It, and basically, there's a whole, uh, there's a large number of people who, who actually look at peer-reviewed journals and are interested in this interface or this, uh, the transformation uh, or translation of science or yoga into science and back and forth. This oh, was our first shot at that. Absolutely. I think people are incredibly thirsty for this kind of knowledge and the popularity of, of this conference so far is, is, you know, and the amount of signups that we're getting is also a testament to, yeah. to how much people are interested in that intersection. And uh, what I really appreciated, though, about the article as well is that you don't, um, you know, oftentimes I think when people bring into conversation different traditions, there's a way in which the, you know, the, the, for example, the yoga tradition might be reduced to the terms as if like, you know, the gunas are just a sort of more primitive version of these, you know, of the, this, these aspects of the nervous system. And, um, and I appreciated that, you know, in the article, it, it sort of points out that these are not identical, however, they can be seen as complementary in this way. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on, you know, just in your own kind of research, and, and maybe this was more, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the woman. Um, uh, Mara Lysa. Mara Lysa. Yeah. Um, maybe that was more of her domain, but um, in your own uh, research, where were these, where did you see kind of not only the complementarity, but also the difference uh, of the two systems? Well, I've always been interested in this, and actually pranayama yoga is actually the one that I thought most about because it's really uh, a, a system of yoga that is literally mapped onto the circuits that I've spent my life studying. I, I kind of view it in an interesting, I would say interesting in a different way. I, I have great respect for the wisdom that people have had over, over the millennia. Mm -hmm. So that I don't think that we are, I'm not as naive, so naive to think that we only have new knowledge and that yeah. old knowledge is not useful. I think there's a lot of wisdom in the past and that wisdom had to be conveyed in different ways and be conveyed in constructs, 
had to be conveyed in movements, which became rituals. So we tie it back to rituals. And if there, if you wanted information to be to transcend it, uh, uh, generation and centuries, you build it into a ritual. So that ritual had to be done in a specific way, and that would carry the information with it. So I think a lot of the yoga practices are far from trial and error models. They are actually rituals that were handed down by very, very special and wise people to enable a society to have an understanding in my world of neurophysiological regulation. And part of what I view as my, uh, my journey is a journey of deconstruction or translation of the wisdom of, of ancients into contemporary terminology. And that paper was, was really part of that. And I've been kind of playing with those ideas for several decades, especially with, with pranayama yoga uh, as a way of understanding. We went to hatha yoga. It's relatively easy as well, because a lot of it has to do with sacral movement. And, and that's also where the other parasympathetic influences come out of the sacrum. So a lot of sacral movements and abdominal movements are really part of understanding vagal regulation or let's say parasympathetic regulation because they're not vagal uh, of the body and how that feeds back. So sacral movements will influence vagal regulation of the heart. So, wow. uh, so these are tied together but here's, here's the caveat here. Uh, those sacral movements are not as efficient in regulating vagal states as breath. Mm. And again, if you talk to people in, in so I, I went to India in the 1990s and I went to, I was talking to people about pranayama yoga and they said, too strong. Too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, and so they were basically doing what I called uh, more like a, Hatha yoga, more of a physical oriented yoga, which is fine, but it's not, its focus is not on the nervous system. Uh, pranayama yoga is the folk, is a system of stimulating the neuroregulation of the facial and head muscles, the nerves that regulate those and the vagal regulation of the heart through those myelinated pathways. So it's a very integrated system that overlays very beautifully with the model that I had for a social engagement system. Mm. Yeah, I thought that article was really fascinating and I'm, I'm looking forward to more of those kinds of articles and, and at the intersection of you know, yoga therapy, yoga philosophy yeah. and, and this, this research. Um, I wanted to ask you actually about the, the sacrum. Is there, are, is there any research that's available on the, you know, on the relationship between the sacrum and, and the vagus nerve that you're talking about? There's, uh, Functionally, I did, I did two studies, actually one study using back in the 1980s with a, he's a physical therapist by the name of John Cunningham. It's published in the journal called Physical Therapy. And it was pelvic tilt ah. and, uh, and its effect on heart rate patternings. That was one study. And the second study was deep abdominal massage mm. and the impact on vagal regulation of the heart as well. So those papers, I mean, people can Google that and, and see those, but I don't know. So I was approaching it from a functional level. And now the question really is, is there neuroanatomical or neurophysiological studies? And part of the problem is that when you do those types of studies, the history has been to anesthetize your subjects, meaning animal models. 
And when you anesthetize them, the feedback loops through the brain get dampened if they exist at all at that point. Yeah. So there was a whole set of issues, even with the work I was doing from the 1970s on, because in animal models, we were the problem was using anesthesia, that you weren't getting a real life example of what was going on. So uh, technologies had to improve the ability to have ambulatory monitoring, even in animals had to be developed. Yeah, yeah. So would that kind of um, pelvic tilt um, also apply in the context of meditation? So, you know, oftentimes the seat is, is considered very important. So if I, ha if I sort of sl slouch leaning against the wall with my pelvis and sort yeah. of posterior tilt, is that, is that then according to this, you know, idea then less uh, it creates a less fruitful circumstance than if i was in more of an anterior tilt or more of a kind so of what's interesting is in the paper that i did with john cunningham he actually measured the angle of inclination of the pelvis hmm. and looked at it as an individual differences and what happened when you changed it uh, so there are data is based upon that so uh, which would suggest that what you're saying is absolutely true. So that if you shift the inclination of the pelvis, you're going to change your uh, vagal, vagal state mm. through the feedback mechanism. So again, if you go back to ancient traditions about a posture of individuals, uh, we moved to the, the way in which people are sitting and what the, when they sit in certain ways do they have certain experiences. Um, there's a physiology to that. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so I have one last question. I want to I want to end on a big one, which I like to do, <laughs> zooming out again into a larger kind of socio-political uh, question. But you remarked actually on this in 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 um, in one of your articles about um, you know this theory uh, um, kind of encourages us to reevaluate our social institutions. So my my question is you know, projecting into the into a kind of imagined future where this uh, theory has been integrated into the structuring of uh, social and political institutions, what would those institutions look like? Okay, so let's, let's start from where I was about 20 years ago. Okay. I, I, wrote, I wrote a book, which I never published, and it was called Conversations with Shiva. A oh, I love that. A biotheology. It's the second part of the title that's powerful. Is that available, or you're no, not? No, no. It, it, it's it's a no, PDF. Not even secretly, Stephen. No, it, it's <laughs> it's a PDF somewhere on my computer. Okay. Um, it's but basically, it's a uh, the idea is that what if we create a religion or a theology that was consistent with our body, as opposed to a theology that was really saying our body was evil or bad. Yes, yes, yes. Strange. What would happen? And in this, it's a it's a metaphoric story, but it's about uh, a a theology that really is really a theology of, of of the polyvagal theory. So it's saying that we respect these aspects of the body, and with this knowledge, we can live a different type of life. So you're asking me the big questions, and you know these are questions that I've thought about, but I've also been kind of uh, let's use this term cautious yeah. about how far we push them. But the idea is if we can respect the body and we start using all different types of words, uh, uh, witnessing and understanding of neuroception, a respect for our body, when we start to do that, what are we doing? We're allowing now 
the narrative of our own behavior, our own states to change. We have a, and this is actually transforming a lot of trauma or survivors of trauma's lives because once they've understood polyvagal theory, the shame and blame of what's happened to them starts to be alleviated. So they understand the limitations of what's happening to them as their body is heroically trying to save their life. And in those heroic uh, aspects of trying to save them, it retuned itself into a defense state. So now limited what they could do on a safety social mode. But once they understand that, they now have a narrative that starts giving them top-down mechanisms that change uh, bottom-up effects. So healing processes occur from both directions. So polyvagal theory is, is a model that is also getting some traction within places like intensive care units, especially neonatal intensive care units, with an understanding that preterm babies are sensitive to the world. So yeah. the physical environment now has to be, quote, polyvagal informed. Yeah. Uh, and so there's traction, we're slowly moving in a sense of moving away from thinking of our bodies as machines that we can fix to an understanding that our bodies are feeling organisms that need to feel safe to fix themselves. So we now are really left with the real most important point is that health, healing and health is dependent upon our body feeling safe to heal itself. And it doesn't matter what types of surgeries or what types of medicines without the body being a, a cooperative collaborator, all these interventions are not going to be as, as effective as they could. Yeah. Well, well, we're a long ways off, but hopefully we'll get there one step at a time. Well, in closing, yeah. we are we are getting there. There's a, you know there's a tremendous interest in the respect of bo- of the body. Absolutely, uh, and not a shaming that we have a body. Yes, yeah. a lot that's changed in the let's let me use the term in the last thirty or forty years. So there's interest and there's uh, credibility for people like me to talk to others in these other areas and build the bridges, the bridges of communication uh, that create the credibility for the work. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been such a pleasure, Stephen. I really appreciate your time and your uh, willingness to contribute to the Embodied Brain online conference. Um, is there any, are there any final uh, thoughts you'd like to share or uh, ways that people can get in touch with you? Well, I have a webpage at stephenporges.com and there's information on that webpage to contact me. Uh, but I think we're on, many of us, I think we're on a wonderful journey. I, I am far from being pessimistic. Yeah. I find that there's tremendous openness around the world and interest in bridging these areas and in a sense, not saying what, what used to be said 20 years ago or 30 years ago is we can't talk about uh, certain things because they're different. Yeah. Now, what I'm really trying to say is we can talk about these things not because they're different, but because functionally they are the same. Right. And, and that's kind of what, where the journey's taking me. Yeah, and it's beautiful that you know, we've, it's like we've gone from this hyper-specialization now mm-hmm. back into a kind of conversational, multidisciplinary kind of framework. Right, and, and I even don't even like the word multidiscipline. I, I think we really are in, in line to create what we call transdisciplines. Oh, I like that. Where we are actually uh, understanding that there needs to be a retraining of ideas, a retraining of professionals 
with a set of different uh, metaphors and understanding how those metaphors can be helpful in different times with different people. Is the distinction between multidisciplinary and disciplinary and transdisciplinary the idea that multidisciplinary implies that the disciplines remain sort of intact yes. in their self-enclosed way? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so I, I got into this discussion about the concept of no health without mental health. And I was part of a, uh, a, a actually, I, I was part of a symposium on this. And I basically said, I, my talk was no health without mental health, colon, are we ready for a brain-body medicine or mind-body medicine with a question mark? And the answer is, I don't think we were ready when I gave the talk. <laughs> did you because, tell them that? <laughs> yes, I did. And because what they were arguing is where they want a place at the table to get some of the billing, some of the money. So they want everything in medicine to have a psychological or psychiatric component. And I said, no, that's never going to work. We need to have people in medicine retrained. Yes. We have to change the training. And that's where the future is. So that becomes a transdisciplinary. So uh, uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary is still our in a sense, acknowledging yeah. the disciplines. But where did they come from? They came from, at one point, a more integrated model of what the body was and how the body, the human, related to the world. Yeah. And polyvagal theory is part of that long tradition uh, in both directions now. So we're trying to, I think it's trying to put it back together again. That's excellent. All right, well, thank you very much, Stephen. I've really appreciated your speaking with me today. You're welcome, Jacob. Nice to meet you and enjoy the hour with you. Thank you.